thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. Okay, we are moving on. We are moving on. And uh, The Naked Scientist is in the house. Brought to you by The Rent Show. It's showtime from the 18th to the 28th of April at the Expo Center, Johannesburg, Nazarek. And I understand we are going to have the pleasure of seeing Chris and his colleagues live in action uh, like we did last year. They're coming downstairs. Sometimes we talk about downstairs as though all our listeners know where downstairs is. Uh, this is our conference room. This is where we have our, um, our roundtable discussions, where we have our demonstrations, our staff meetings, and certainly in front of a live audience last year, we're entertained by the Naked Scientists, and it's going to happen again this year. Am I right, Chris? Oh, I hope so. I'm really looking forward to it, really. Or, or am I counting my eggs before they hatch? But certainly, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're working towards. That's what we're working towards. We'll tell our listeners all about that. Uh, welcome to the show. That means that our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Chris, tell me about this first artificial chromosome that's been created. There is a big paper that's just come out. They're calling this a landmark study or the Mount Everest of molecular biology. And scientists at um, Johns Hopkins in America have managed to create a yeast artificial or synthetic chromosome. Now, this is a landmark for several reasons. About 10 years ago, scientists were able to create the full genetic material of a virus and get a polio virus working again in cells just by buying little pieces of genetic information off the internet and stringing them all together. Mm -hmm. Then a little bit after that, uh, Craig Venter created an artificial chromosome in a bacterium, which is an order of magnitude bigger and more more complex to do, and he created a synthetic genome running a, a small bacterium called ureoplasma. And now, this week, we've got scientists in America who are saying we've done this for a whole chromosome in yeast, and why this is important is that yeast cells are biochemically the same as human cells. So they have the same sorts of mechanisms of operation and the same chromosomal structure that our cells and other mammalian and other complex life cells do. So that's why this is so important, because again, it marks a step change. It's a step up in complexity. And it's published in Science this week. The way they did it is by actually building an artificial version of this chromosome in a computer first, and then cutting and pasting, if you like, little tiny tracts of genetic material into yeast cells to replace their own chromosome number three, so that by the time they'd finished this very long series of experiments, they had rewritten the entire chromosome with their synthetic version, which has got various edits into it and and other things that can make it distinguishable from the normal chromosome 3, and it works perfectly, and their yeast grows and looks 
indistinguishable wow. from what we call wild type or natural yeast. And this means that you can do with this sort of technique uh, a number of things. One, it proves that this is possible. Number two, it means that by manipulating these chromosomes in this way, we can begin to ask important questions about how they work, how different combinations of genes are important working together to make an organism viable, and so on. So it's a really important starting point. And, and as I say, you can read about it in Science This Week. Uh, Srinivasan Chandrasegaran is the, is the lead author on that study at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And I understand commentators are really excited about this work. Our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask the naked scientists? Let's go straight to Michael. Hi there, Michael. Good morning. Hi, Rudy. Mm. Um, Heat, the way I understand it, is transferred through either convection, conduction, or radiation. And the radiation are electromagnetic waves. My question is, what creates those electromagnetic waves at a molecular level? Hello, good morning. Uh, Yeah, lovely question. You're quite right. So you do uh, shed heat from things by it being conducted away, and this is vibrations of the particles in a substance, or it can be convection where particles of, say, a gas, air, can be excited by a heat source and then they become less dense and so they rise and carry the energy away, being replaced by cooler, more dense air, and then the whole radiation phenomenon. Well, if I heat something up and I give it energy, then I'm making the particles in there uh, vibrate more vigorously. And this includes the cloud of electrons around the particles. And when you make electrons move or vibrate, then they create a field. And that means that they give rise to light. And they give rise to light at the long wavelength spectrum. So you get infrared coming off. And that's basically how it works. Thank you very much, Michael. Short and sweet. Rennie in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi, Reedy. My question for the naked scientist is what is the body mechanism that makes a person wake up? Uh, no matter what time I go to bed, I always wake up at the same time. What is the body mechanism that actually makes someone wake up and not just carry on sleeping? Or in my case, some days <laughs> I don't wake up <laughs> or I don't want to wake up. Uh, pretty much every living thing on earth has a body clock. And this varies in complexity from bacteria, which have a body clock, right through to us, where we have a body clock comprising several thousand, probably 20 or 25,000 nerve cells in our brains. In us, it's a region of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is this cluster of nerve cells which are running a genetic program which is a series of linked genes. So gene 1 turns on gene 2, turns on gene 3, gene 3 feeds back and turns off gene 1. That's a simplification, but it's basically how it works. And ticking round that genetic clock takes just over 24 hours. And as these different classes of genes turn on and off, they alter the behaviour of these nerve cells, and the altered connections of the, or the altered behaviour or electrical function in these nerve cells is then transmitted via nerve connections to other nerve cells and then it ripples across the brain altering your behavior it's also wired up because it's in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus which controls your body functions it's wired up to your pituitary gland and the pituitary gland also secretes a very powerful hormone uh, called ACTH which goes to your adrenal glands in your kidneys and makes you make a hormone called cortisol. And cortisol is a main, main, main stress hormone. It's very important for uh, maintaining your blood sugar, mm. keeping you growing, and it's a strong wake-up signal. And so your body clock at about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning will strongly activate your secretion of cortisol, and the cortisol will then visit every cell in your body and tell those cells, right, it's time to change your metabolism, it's time to wind up your energy production and get ready for the day ahead. 
and that's called waking up. And so come six o'clock, your body's in pretty good shape to get woken up and come seven o'clock or sunrise or whatever you're accustomed to doing early in the morning, you're, you're then peaking and waking up. And that's why you do your best work early in the day because your body is most rested and most primed for action. Thank you very much. And uh, we are taking your calls again. Uh, but, but right now, we are busy with the Naked Scientist. You can give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Gary in Montague Gardens. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I, my question is, so I want to know what um, controls the oxygen levels on the globe. If you consider the, you know, the, the amount of deforestation all the fires you have, thousands of fires a year, carbon monoxide from pollution, population growth, all these factors use, use oxygen. So what controls the level that we can breathe properly every day at the correct percentage? Hi, Gary. Lovely question. Mm. So you're right to highlight the importance of oxygen around the world. It makes up about 20 to 21% of the air. Sometimes in the past it's been higher than that, um, over millions of years' time scale, I mean. Sometimes it's a little bit lower. And every season, the level of CO2 rises and um, the level of oxygen rises and falls in the atmosphere. And that's because of the source of oxygen, trees and plants and the oceans. The, the oxygen we have in the air is largely a result of photosynthesis. This is the process by which plants capture energy from the sun and they use it to drive a series of chemical reactions leading to the production of sugars that the plant can use for growth and oxygen as a byproduct which the plant throws out into the atmosphere. And obviously trees are a, a really important source of oxygen but by far and away the most massive source are marine plants, tiny single-celled planktonic algae so-called um, uh, yeah, plankton in the sea, and they are photosynthesizing just like plants on land are, and they're chucking out oxygen as a byproduct and drawing down enormous amounts of carbon dioxide as, um, as their source of carbon to make their sugars with. So it's all down to plants, and that's why we have to be really careful how we look after the planet, because if we wreck the system that's keeping these plants happy, then they won't do mm. that, and then we won't have any oxygen to breathe. True. All right, Andre, I am so excited about your question. Please stay on the line. We have to take this ad break. Back in a moment. Talk Radio, talk radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Andre, hi. Good day. Mm. Um, with all these planes going down and not finding the black boxes, why is it possible they can make these black boxes buoyant? Good question, Andre. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a number of reasons for this. The first reason is that the black box is inside the aeroplane. And if the aeroplane sinks, you can't necessarily make the black box come out. You could do, um, but if it, it doesn't really solve the problem of putting all this buoyancy in if it's trapped inside the aeroplane. And these things are inside the aeroplane in places where they're probably going to survive an, an aeroplane impact. Also, the black boxes, the way they work is that they're storing large amounts of information and they're storing it in a redundant way so that it's hard to disrupt or destroy that information. You can always recover it. And that means that they are quite bulky and they're therefore going to weigh something. 
so it's not trivial to just make them buoyant, but they do make them red, which should make them easier to spot. They mm -hmm. emit radar, uh, sorry, radio waves, so that we can track them, and they also emit sounds underwater, so that they can be found if they're immersed, because radio waves, except very, very long wavelength radio waves, will not travel underwater. If anyone's interested, actually, in how black boxes, which are actually more accurately red boxes, actually work, we've just published a little podcast on The Naked Scientist, um, and it's it's called Quickfire Science, and it's it's on the front page of NakedScientist.com right now, and it's it's literally about a minute and a half of facts about these black boxes and how they work. Um, so if everyone wants to to find that, they can. Or if you follow at Naked Scientists, I will at the end of this program tweet the link to it, and then you can have a listen. And it's it's really interesting how they work, where they came from, why they were invented, and what might happen next. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Andre. Thank you. Uh, Joseph in Bryanston, hi. We keep getting this question, but it doesn't hurt to go back to it. Joseph, hi. Good morning. Mm. Uh, what I want to know is, what was there before the Big Bang? And if the answer is nothing, what was it that exploded to cause the Big Bang, and where did it come from? <laughs> Joseph... You're asking the wrong person. I think you need to ask God, because uh, I don't think we, we have any way of knowing the answer to that question. On last week's programme, I discussed the study which made big waves around the planet Earth uh, about the discovery of gravity waves from the Big Bang last week. We talked to Clem Prike, who is one of the discoverers of those gravity waves, on the Naked Scientist show on the BBC on Sunday just published it as a podcast actually if you want to catch it up um and uh, he was pointing out that what they're seeing in their gravity waves is what was happening in a trillionth of one trillionth of one trillionth so a very small number sure. of a second after the big bang that's as far as they can go back with this because the, the, th the thing is we're looking at fingerprints of what happened when the Big Bang took place, which gives us an idea as to how it happened in the first place, but it gives us no insight into where it came from in the first place at all, really. Uh, so we can only speculate. One physicist in New York who I speak to from time to time is Michio Kaku. He's got a book out called Parallel Universes, which he wrote about ten years ago, but it's a good book. And he came and spoke to us at a meeting in Cambridge, and he said, well, my own theory is that um, we may be in one of many universes and that the beginning of a new universe is from what we call a white hole, and the white hole might be for, or excuse my French, uh, the arse end of a black hole. Um, so someone else's black hole is sucking up, sucking up uh, material from one universe and ejecting it at a white hole at the other end into a new universe, a new universe, Big Bang. Uh, but we really don't know, Joseph, I'm afraid. Okay. Thank you very much, Joseph. And we've got Rooklyn in Gordons Bay. Good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Rudy. Hi, Chris. Hello. My question, my question is, why do you awake from nightmares? Ah. Why don't you just sleep right through a nightmare? Why does it wake you up? Thanks, Rooklyn. Hello, Rocklin. Well, I think the answer to this is that because we find nightmares scary, they trigger all of your body's stress and fear responses, what's called the fight-or-flight reaction. And one of the key things that happens when you have this fight-or-flight reaction is that your body produces large amounts of adrenaline and, and another related chemical called noradrenaline. And these are hormones. They go around in your bloodstream and they excite all of the tissues in your body, including making your heart beat very hard and very fast. They make your breathing speed up and they effectively get you ready to run away or to fight with somebody.
And if that happens when you're asleep, then all of those changes to your body can be so powerful that they can actually make you want to wake up. And so you wake up and you're often sweating and you feel your heart thudding in your chest and you may be gasping for breath because you've got so many of these hormones going around triggered by the scary dream. And I think it's probably those sorts of changes to your body triggered by the hormones that make you wake up. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Ruklin, for that lovely question. And I think all of us uh, wake up from uh, from nightmares. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. Let's go to Lisiho. Lisiho, good morning to you. Morning, Ready and uh, the Naked Scientist. Yes. My question is, um, I wanted to understand the relationship between the airbag and the car seat belt. Uh, I had one of the callers yesterday on John Robbie's show saying that you need to engage your seatbelt before you start the car because if uh, you start the car first and engage the seatbelt, uh, during the accident, the airbag won't engage. Oh, is that so? I didn't hear that. Chris? No, I didn't know that. I, um, there might be a safety mechanism built into some vehicles so the airbag can't deploy inappropriately, but I'd be quite surprised because people not wearing seatbelts is a major, major, major cause of death and catastrophic injury, and the rates of of deaths on roads fell precipitously as soon as seatbelt laws were introduced in the majority of countries around the world. And airbags can also bring enormous increases in safety to cars in accident situations. Most airbags are triggered by a pressure sensor which is located in the front of the car, so that when the front end of the car it meets an obstacle or an obstruction or is bashed into with sufficient force, not trivial force. So if you just bump into the car in front just very gently, you don't want the airbag going off because the airbag can actually injure somebody. It goes off with such force that if you're not moving or you don't need it to go off, it can injure you quite severely. So uh, you only deploy the airbag when you need it. This, This pressure sensor responds to a sufficient amount of pressure to the front end of the car, which would generally be generated during an accident and it's wired up to trigger the airbag which uses a chemical reaction to produce large amounts of gas very very quickly which inflates the airbag faster than your face can compress it and this protects your your head and face from the steering wheel because serious head injury in car accidents is a major major cause of death or long-term disability following a, a vehicle accident let's go to peter in centurion good morning Good morning. Mm-hmm. I just need to find out why after years of marriage do couples tend to look like each other? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that could be bad in, in my case. Um, I in can't imagine team. having having breasts that big. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Moobs, one thing, but that, no, it could be bad. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, the, you know, it could be, it could just be that people who uh, kind of get on well together tend to go for the kinds of people that that have features that are similar to their own. Because you know, everyone loves themselves to a certain extent, don't they? So, do mm. we look for similar sorts of traits and behaviours and characteristics in in our ideal partner? Maybe we do. But then, on the other hand, they say opposites attract, don't they? So, I'm going to have to say I really don't know the answer to that one. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Lesiho. Yeah, I've heard it so many times as well. No, it's not Lesiho. Uh, sorry, Lesiho was a seatbelt guy. I beg your pardon. Um, is it Vanessa in Four Ways? Hi. Yes, it is. Hi, good morning. I just want to find out, when you go through emotions, serious emotions in your life, people refer to it, you have a heart, you, you, your heart breaks or you got it or you have butterflies in your tummy. But it comes from the brain. I'm sure if it's hormones or something, it comes from the brain. And there's no organ where you actually feel it, but you feel anxiety and, and fear and happiness and everything somewhere there around your stomach. 
Yeah, um, that, that's a good point, Vanessa, you make there, and you're absolutely right. And it's all down to nerve signals. When your brain is fearful, and we heard earlier about the fight-or-flight reaction waking you up from a nightmare, when you are terrified by something or you have chronic grumbling anxiety about something, what your brain is doing is preparing you for action because back in, in evolutionary times, then we probably wouldn't have been being chased by the taxman. We would have been being chased by a very, a very big animal that wanted to eat us or a rival tribe that wanted to butcher us. So the body, when, when it sees a fearful situation, would have interpreted that as something that you either need to run away from or turn around and fight against. So you have this fight-or-flight reaction in which your body galvanises your tissues for action. And what it does is it turns on a very fast heartbeat, it dries up your saliva because you don't want to be choking on your own saliva trying to breathe, it makes your pupils open wide so you can see a long way and get lots of light into your eyes, it makes you breathe much harder and open up your airways, and it also suppresses the action of your intestines because you don't want to be trying to digest your dinner and devoting a large amount of your cardiac output, your blood flow, mm. through your intestines. That blood is needed in your muscles to help you run away or fight. So your body shuts down the blood flow into your guts and deactivates the muscles in your guts. And this is why you get that so-called, in inverted commas, sinking feeling when something stresses you because it is your guts quite literally shutting off. And that's why many of these symptoms are attributed to the intestines and the, and the viscera because you turn them off, you reduce the blood flow, and they all relax or, or sink down in your tummy. And then you also get the symptoms of racing heart, fast breathing, maybe feeling a little bit dizzy, especially if you breathe a bit too hard and, and hyperventilate. So that's why. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Thank you. Rainier and Mashuk, I'm very, very sorry that I can't take your calls, but I promise you, next week, Friday, we will, we will call you, and you will be our first two callers. Chris, have a lovely weekend. Thanks, Rudy, and uh, I'm looking forward very much to seeing you in a couple of weeks in Johannesburg at 7.02 and then at the Rancho. It's going to be great. We're very excited indeed. By the way, we will podcast this last conversation with Chris. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.